From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. For a long time, gay people were considered mentally ill and subjected to cruel treatments until a Colorado psychologist decided to test that assumption. And yet she had the forces of religion, the forces of law, and the forces of mental health professionals all saying that's inevitably the way it was. For Pride Month, we share the remarkable story of Evelyn Hooker. The psychological research that was an outgrowth of Evelyn's work has paid tremendous dividends to the lesbian gay community over the years. Then, as the Nuggets make history, hear from one of the original players about the team's long journey to the championship, starting as the Rockets. I go back in the memories, and the older players, even some older than me, you know, they're getting their due now, too. The largest source of support for Colorado Public Radio comes from members across our state. I'm from Denver. Aurora. Glenwood Spring. Grand Junction. Boulder. Ranch. With your donation, you connect your city to nonprofit journalism, to inspiring stories, and you connect your community to a wide range of music that fills our daily life. Month after month, donors continue to step up. Thank you for your support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Psychologists thought for a long time that something was wrong with gay people, that they needed treatment like lobotomies, chemical castration. Well, today, the story of a Coloradan, a straight woman, who tested that thinking and disproved it. And yet she had the forces of religion, the forces of law, and the forces of mental health professionals all saying that's inevitably the way it was. They believed it so much that it was startling that she would dare to suggest otherwise. This is the story of experimental psychologist Evelyn Hooker. This was a woman who had grown up poor on the plains of Colorado, neither of whose parents went beyond the fourth grade. This is a woman who went to one-room schoolhouses, who was just a tad under six feet tall while she was still in school, and who was, we would say now, bullied as a result of that. The voice there of psychologist Glenda Russell of Louisville, Colorado, who in some ways followed in Hooker's footsteps. Russell is also a keeper of LGBTQ history and met Dr. Hooker. And it's not much in her biographies, but she also was bipolar. And so I'm sure that's a, you know was incredibly stigmatized, and especially if you were a professional woman, and especially if you were in a mental health profession. Well, Douglas Kimmel is co-author of What a Light It Shed, The Life of Evelyn Hooker, named for what a member of the audience exclaimed when Dr. Hooker presented her findings to the American Psychological Association. Well, the study was done in the 1950s. And so at that time, there was a great sense that homosexuality was a mental illness that had serious consequences both for individuals, they were often hospitalized and given extraordinary treatments trying to cure them. Uh, They also had a number of theories that blamed the mother or the family constellation for causing it, and this created a great deal of distress among parents who were trying to raise their children in the proper way. And also, there was a great fear that somehow 
homosexuals were especially vulnerable for national security. And so there were purges both in the army during World War II and also in the uh, establishment in Washington, the federal government, trying to root out homosexuals because they were somehow thought to be uh, a threat or immoral or somehow not worthy of serving the country. Kimmel says after finishing her studies at the University of Colorado, where she honed her research skills, then on to graduate work at Johns Hopkins, Hooker was hired by UCLA. She was uh, actually teaching as an adjunct professor at UCLA at the time because uh, being a woman in the 1950s, that was the only kind of position that one could actually expect to have. And one of her students in the abnormal psychology class was challenging her when she was teaching the course on abnormal psychology about homosexuality. And he would speak with her after class and talk to her about uh, some of his friends and convinced her that this might be something that she needed to look into. And she did, even getting federal funding for it, Kimmel told me. And we'll dig into the finer points of her research. But first, I want to jump to the end, the impact of her work and the work of queer psychologists and psychiatrists who tried to change their profession from the inside. The psychological research that was an outgrowth of Evelyn's work has paid tremendous dividends to the lesbian gay community over the years. We have used the techniques that she learned at the University of Colorado in doing psychological research to gather the data, present the findings, distribute them in peer-reviewed journals, and then translate that into amicus briefs and legislative activities that have changed the decisions of courts primarily, but in some cases also legislation, and has had dramatic effects that have radiated throughout the world. Doug Kimmel, who co-wrote What a Light It Shed, The Life of Evelyn Hooker. While her groundbreaking research came in the 1950s, and indeed continued, it wasn't until 1973 that the American Psychiatric Association removed homosexuality as a diagnosis from the all-important Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. All right, let's get more of the story now from Glenda Russell, community historian in Louisville and psychologist and CU graduate herself. She met Evelyn Hooker in the early 80s during her internship at UCLA. Russell says she was fascinated. Why were you fascinated by Evelyn Hooker? I was a couple of reasons. I mean, she did amazing work, and it was really good, solid work. She was an experimental psychologist, and she did excellent work. And she did it in a way that other people might not have done it. Because what she said was... If you say this is a sickness, if you say this is a, if you say homosexuality is a mental illness, then if I get together a bunch of people who are homosexual and I compare them with a bunch of people, 30 in number in each group actually, just 30 who are straight, then every person in that homosexual group should be sick in a distinctive kind of way. Hmm. And she matched the people 
who were in the two groups, and she matched them on age and education and that sort of thing. And she was looking for people who were not in therapy, who were not in the psych hospital, who were not in prison, and because those are the people who had been studied as homosexuals before that. It's a very generalizable group. You take people who are really having trouble, and you say, oh, this is what all homosexuals are like. Oh, gosh. But to the extent that there was any research, it was that kind of research. And so she said... I should be able to find then that in all of these 30 men who are homosexual, I should be able to find a distinctive kind of mental illness. Some sort of aberration. Right. And then when she looked, she went, mm, she got experts to read their test results. And the experts who were like nationally renowned experts in the particular areas that they were looking at couldn't tell the difference between the gay men mm -hmm. and the straight men. And, and the rest became history. It's interesting to me that the work was done with men. Yeah. There's a, there's a, I mean, think about the 50s. Who talked to women? Um, hmm. They would have literally have had more trouble getting women. One of the ways she was able to make headway into getting a solid group of respondents, a solid group of participants in the research, was she went to the Mattachine Society. The Mattachine Society was an early gay rights activist group. That's right. And activists maybe give them a little too much credit. I mean, for the 1950s, getting together and having a meeting and putting out a Mattachine review was a very activist thing That's to do, right. to yeah. be sure. This was not necessarily the kind of marching That's or right. political advocacy we know today. That's right. Because it had to start somewhere. And, that's, and that was one of the places that it started. And Daughters of Bilitis wasn't started until right around the time that she was already doing a research, but it hadn't gotten going, and it was up in San Francisco. The notion of a lesbian equivalent. That's group. right. Uh-huh. Yeah, and so and Daughters of Bilitis was up in San Francisco. Evelyn was at, at UCLA, though not on the permanent faculty. She was an adjunctive psychologist. Did you ever think you were an aberration? I, I mean, I, I wonder to some extent, if this research was affirming for you yeah. that you were okay? Yeah. That's a great question. I think for most people who are lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender, there's some point in their lives where they have to do one, two things. And one is to label what it is and who it is that they are. Mm -hmm. And they go, oh, that's what that is. And then immediately after that usually comes a whole bunch of associations that they've picked up in their families, in the community, in the society at large that say, oh, and then this goes with that, and this is bad, and that's bad, and that's bad too. So the next step that has to be done is to figure out how much those things apply to me. Mm -hmm. So I think it's inevitable to have some of that, especially when I was growing up, um, I think there are people who are coming up the pike now who have very little of that until they come out more publicly and then they get hit with a rush of it. Maybe they grew up in a family where there's not a ton of homophobia or transphobia. What I'm hearing you say is that to have Evelyn Hooker's research as part of the zeitgeist is a positive message in a torrent of other Mixed messages. And that's especially true in the mid-1950s. She did her first talk on that research in 1956 wow. at the American Psychological Association in Chicago. 
and it blew people out of the water. You use the word zeitgeist. That's a, it's a good word for this, too. Hmm. There were a couple of people who were sort of inching in that direction. A, a psychiatrist, a psychoanalyst named Clara Thompson had published around that same time and had published about the need for gay and lesbian people to accept themselves. But that was a voice in the wilderness. And Thompson's work was not based on research, It was, ba- which is the coin of the kingdom in psychology. Mm-hmm. It was based on more clinical kinds of studies. And so Evelyn comes along with a very good, sound piece of research and says, y'all talk about this as received knowledge, this idea that gay people are inevitably mentally ill. That's not what I'm finding. I took the best experts in the country and said, can you tell me that they are substantially different in terms of mental health than this group of well-functioning straight men? And they said no. One of them was so appalled at the idea that he couldn't figure it out that he said, I want to do it again. I want to, I want to go no, through it. I want to do over. Because <laughs> he just couldn't believe it. And a lot of people couldn't believe it. Yeah. She said, this is a huge assumption. Let's test it. Yeah. Yeah. You got to meet her. Yes. And were you starstruck? Did you have something you wanted to say to her? No, I wanted. I had things I wanted to listen to. I, uh-huh. I, wanted, I wanted to hear her. I didn't have anything in particular I needed to say to her. Yeah, I was, you were all ears. Yeah, I totally was. I mean, she was a very smart woman, and she was interesting and kind of fun. I mean, she had a nice sense of humor, and so I didn't have anything to say. I was really... I was sitting at the feet of somebody who had changed the universe in some important ways for LGBT people. Thank you so much for being with us. You're welcome. Thank you. Glenda Russell of Louisville, psychologist and LGBTQ community historian. We spoke about research psychologist Evelyn Hooker, who spent her formative years in Colorado. Hooker's work helped the world understand that being gay was okay. Before we go to break, Evelyn Hooker in her own words. This is from the film Changing Our Minds. The clip reveals her sense of humor about going to graduate school at Johns Hopkins. I wanted to go to Yale, but no, no. The chairman of the department decided that he could not refer a woman to go to Yale. He himself was from Yale. And he had studied why raccoons wash their food. I think the only thing he discovered was to get it clean in any event. So he said, no, he couldn't do that. I go to Hopkins. And then I'm terribly glad. It turns out to be my kind of place. Special thanks to Andrew Sears of Denver for alerting us to this story. Sears is a doctoral student in psychology. By the way, each year, CU Boulder gives out the Dr. Evelyn Hooker Advocacy Award. It goes to a faculty member who has inspired an LGBTQ student to excel in the sciences. And we'll be right back as the Nuggets rocket towards the championship. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. In the new episode of My Story So Far, Pride on the Western Slope. One of the only spaces where I could explore my queerness openly. Um, I describe it as like a very dusty breakfast club. (laughs) My Story So Far, everywhere you get your podcasts.
The Denver Nuggets could win their first NBA championship tonight and in front of the home crowd. Watching with pride and excitement is Ralph Simpson, one of the original Nuggets, back when they were actually the Denver Rockets. He helped transition the team into the NBA. Simpson spoke with my colleague Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Of course, I can't wait to ask you about how you're feeling about all of this, but First, let's go into the backstory. Explain how the Denver Rockets became the Denver Nuggets way back in 1976. I sure will. Well, we had the merger, right? And we were the Rockets. And they couldn't keep that name because it was the Houston Rockets name also. And so Carl Shue, who was the general manager at the time, said, well, we're going to have a raffle and see what name we could get besides the Houston Rockets. Mm. And so we got the Denver Nuggets. It was a raffle and uh, fans came up with the Denver Nuggets. That's how we got it. Wow. And they were the most successful of the former ABA squads, winning a division title and appearing in the playoffs where they lost to the eventual champion, the Portland Trailblazers. You remember all of that? I remember that, although I wasn't on the team then and got traded to Detroit that year. But they were really good. You know, they had David Thompson, Bobby Jones, and that team was really good. And the Pistons owner was a man by the name of Mr. Davison. Mm-hmm. And so he said, well, I'm not going to vote for the merger unless Ralph Simpson was traded to Detroit. Wow. And, uh, I thought that was <laughs> and, you know, being a Detroiter, I went to Persons High School, Detroit. I went to Michigan State. I'm right outside of Detroit. And so I was sort of kind of a legend there in Detroit. We won the state championship in 1968, and on that team was Spencer Haywood, who was a very, very great player at the time. And you represented the Rockets in five ABA All-Star games? Yes, I did. Yeah, five ABA All-Star games. And I'm still the leading scorer of the Denver Rockets. Wow. And so that still stands. And since this Denver Nuggets team is going to the final. It seems that I'm getting a lot more publicity now than I did then. (laughs) So you're getting your due, too. You're getting your due. (laughs) So it's definitely been a long haul for the Nuggets to get to this point. And kind of a a slow build, if you will. And the general sentiment, as you've expressed, is that they are finally getting their due. So how does it feel seeing your team finally make it and actually being favored in the NBA Finals for the first time in franchise history? It feels good. It feels good. But what else feels good to me is that I go back in the memories, the older players, even some older than me, you know, they getting their due now too. You know, guys like Warren Jabali, L. Smith, you know, let's see, Julius Keys, Julian Tamman. These were older guys that had played with the Denver Rockets. And I think these guys should get their due too. A lot of times the the older players are forgotten, but not Mm. forgotten by me because they were friends of mine, and it's just great to get their due, to see them guys get their due. Chuck Williams, who lives here, you know, people forget that Chuck Williams was on that team as well. Monty Tao, these was first five foot six guy to play in the NBA. And I actually talked to him. He called me. He said, Ralph, you're a really great player. You get to do now, and I, I feel good about that. Well, see, you, you actually beat me to it. I was going to ask, have you been reconnecting with any of your former teammates and other fellow players? Have you all been talking about this? Absolutely. Absolutely. We, I get a lot of phone calls. Last week, even Julius Irvin called me. Whoa, you know, Dr. J. Play. He says, Ralph, y'all doing it. You're doing it. <laughs> you know, he, 
I'm going to watch the TV on TV. I said, Julius, we're not going to be on TV. I said, the Nuggets are. <laughs> Get connected with those guys. It just really feels good. You know, Monty mm-hmm. Tao, Jimmy Foster, Roger Brown. You know, I just remember those guys like, you know, it was yesterday. You know, and Chuck Williams, he and I talk a lot because he lives in Denver. He went to East High School, graduated from CU, and he's a Colorado Hall of Famer, you know. And so it's great to connect with those guys. I'm kind of getting the sense that this is the Denver Nuggets moment, of course, but it's also an opportunity to highlight the foundation that you all played in this team being where it is today. Yeah, absolutely. Those guys getting that, you know, getting that notoriety, I want to say. You know, L. Smith, I played with him several years in the uh, ABA. And it's kind of a sad story, but I, I want people to know about L. One of the toughest guys I ever played with. You know, we got our pension money just last year. I don't know if you knew that, Sandra. No. 50 years went by, and the NBA would not give us our pension. Finally, wow. they gave us our pension last year, right? You know, and guys were getting their checks, 20000 30000 L got his check. You know, the day before he got that check, he committed suicide. Oh. It just brings tears to my eyes when I think about it. And, uh, you know, you, he, he didn't get to spend his money. You know, he played four or five years in, with the Rockets. Really good player, you know. And so another guy passed, Julian Hammond passed, who lived here. There was a couple other guys that passed. With a lot of the players you feel never really got the acknowledgement or the compensation that they deserved for being a part of the foundation of the Denver Nuggets as we know it today. For sure. Absolutely. Can you put into words what this moment means to you and what you think it means to all these fellow players who built the foundation of what we know as the Denver Nuggets today? I think a lot of them are excited for their families. They were the foundation of the Denver Nuggets and Denver Rockets. I can feel the love and kindness when I talk with them. And I think it's really good to know that these guys know that they were the foundation of the Denver Rockets and the Denver Nuggets. Tell me about your viewing. So have you been like fixated on the TV each night, like watching the games with like a bowl of popcorn and a platter of hot wings and a, a do not yeah, disturb sign hung on the back of your chair? Right, right. That's right. You know, really, you know, I watch every game, every second, every minute. And my oldest son, who lives in Atlanta, by the way, but we talk all the way through the game. You know, so, so you're on the phone to, and you're like back and forth, almost like another commentary going on. Yep. <laughs> Everybody here who knows me, they call me sometimes, man, you're going to watch that game. I know it. The Denver Nuggets won. I say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Some of my really good friends like Julius Irvin, uh, George McGinnis, they'll call it. They'll say, you know, Miami's really good, Ralph. I say, I know they beat Milwaukee and it's not going to be a, a cakewalk, but I think we're going to win. What do you think about how the team is playing? I think they're playing really good, you know, and I look at the team. I think their kindness to the guys like me. Whenever I go to game, Michael Malone is really nice to me, and Josh is exceptionally nice to me. Michael's dad coached with my dad in Detroit. My dad was an assistant coach and a head scout. And, in fact, he drafted Isaiah Thomas, Rodman, and Dumars. And he had that much insight. So I say, Mike. We are brothers from another mother. <laughs> he he cracked him. He just, you know, at first I told him that he, he didn't know what I meant. So he calls his dad, right? And then he comes back the next time I see him. He said, why didn't you tell me that? Oh, man. And ever since then, 
me and Michael Malone and my family have been really tight. And so that's one of the reasons I really put for the Nuggets is that they have been really nice to me and my family. Yep. That's awesome. Well, Jokic, a.k.a. the Joker, has clearly emerged as the team star player and oh, arguably the best in the world. So through eight seasons, he's already racked up five All-Star selections, four All-NBA selections, and back-to-back MVP awards. And he will likely go down as the greatest second round pick of all time when it's all said and done. What are your thoughts? Yeah, what are your thoughts on his role in all of this and how he fits into the rest of the team? You know, when I see him, when I talk to him, he's just so humble, Sandra. The guy is so, hey, Ralph, how you doing? I say, everything's going. And he has a joke every time I see him. Uh, he says, uh, where did you go to college, Ralph? I say, Michigan State. And he said, you know where I went, right? I said, no, I know where you went. He said, I went to Harvard. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't go to Harvard, but it's, it's, he's hilarious. He's just funny, you know. And I know his brothers. His brothers, one of his brothers is seven foot two. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. And they like, you know, they just so kind and so, you know, you can engage with them, you know. Mm. And, and it's really nice to him. He, he knows who I am. And Murray's the same way. When I see Murray, he just stops and talks to me like, man, give me some pointers. <laughs> you know, so, like that. so they really are acknowledging you all and acknowledging you and the role you played in this moment that they're having. Right. Exactly. You know, and so it's a rumor going around. If they win the title, we're going to get a rank. <laughs> Whoa, you're going to have to share that with us. I'm actually fascinated with the fact that the Joker is a Joker. This is news to me. <laughs> and he just makes you laugh, you know. So oh, that's that really awesome that you can have those moments and share that. You have stayed in Denver and Colorado, obviously. So what do you think this means to Denver and Colorado to experience this? Off the chain. The quote of the year, off the chain. <laughs> you see the watch party, right? These people are so crazy about the Nuggets. They got on their T-shirts and every game's like that. So what are you up to these days? What's keeping you busy when you're not watching the Denver Nuggets games? Well, grandkids, number one. And I spend a lot of time in my church. You know, my wife and I are both Christians. It's in Aurora, Christ Church Apostolic. And that takes up most of our time with grandkids. We have 17 grandchildren, by the way. Whoa. And the, <laughs> that does sound yeah. busy. And four younger ones are boys. And they stay with us most of the time. You know, so they just, they like being with me and my wife. And, you know, eat us out of house and home. And so, you know, <laughs> but we love them. You know, they, they nerve-wracking our two youngest. They are characters. Oh, I have met them. They are the speech and debate <laughs> champions at East High School. Yep. And they have, mm-hmm. they actually got on Colorado Matters before you. Can you believe that? <laughs> I can't believe it. But they are engaging. And I'll tell you that they're engaging two young kids and guys. Yes, the guys you know. twins. And we have to hear how they stand after the next competition. So please keep us posted on that. Sure will. No problem. Before yep. I let you go, I have to ask. What does your daughter, who we all know is Grammy Award winner, India Ari, think about all of this Nuggets mania? Is she into it? Has she been cheering for the team? Are we going to get an official Nuggets anthem out of this? Do tell. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, one of my friends says, you need to, to should do the national anthem 
if we go seven games. Ooh, you heard it here on Colorado Matters. <laughs> <laughs> so you have to ask her that. But she calls me and she said, Dad, have they put you on TV yet? I said, no, not yet. We'll, we'll get to it. And she'll tell me, Dad, they ought to do this and they ought to do that. Said, You're a legend. Everywhere I go, people ask me about you. And I say, Indian, everywhere I go, they ask me about you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you yeah, tell so her you. that you may not be on TV, but you have made it on radio, on Colorado Matters, on Colorado Public Radio. So you let her know you are getting some uh, shine, as they say. Right, right. I'll, I'll tell her. <laughs> <laughs> well, exciting times. Ralph, thank you for joining us. Okay, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Ralph Simpson speaking with Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Simpson played for the Denver Rockets and the team it became, the Nuggets. And Colorado Matters continues shortly. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Colorado's beautiful summers are even better with music of every kind. Classical, blues, indie, we've got those. Country, jazz, roots, we've got them too. From massive events with marquee headliners to more intimate gatherings, you can find summer concerts and festivals to suit your taste. See the list, who's playing, where and when, at CPR.org. A graduation ceremony this month featured some exceptional women. They are the first graduating class from DPS's Community Hubs, which help with child care, food, language classes, and GEDs. CPR's Jenny Brundine spoke with one of the graduates at commencement, a moving mixture of speeches, music, tears, and joy. She's the last graduate in a row of 28 women. She's wearing a black graduation gown with a bright blue sash decorated with a Mexican embroidered floral design. My name is Maria del Rosario. I'm 37 years old. I born in Mexico. I came like 20 years ago. I was 18. And I have my one-year-old with me when I was crossing the border. So I just was working and focused on my kids. I didn't speak any English. I didn't understand anything. And then I started like doing activities in school with my kids. I was the president for PTCO, and I was just like really involved of the school. I, I went to school because it was like English classes at the school. I noticed that I need to learn more, but I didn't have the time to be there full time, you know, because I have two jobs, so my schedule is really hard because I'm working. She kept working on her English. One day, her youngest, who's in eighth grade, asked her, Can you help me with math? I'm like, wow, I have no idea. She wanted to help him, and she had another realization. Now that my kids are older, I just decided to start looking at myself, like, focus on me. Because finally, after 20 years, I can... I got my permit to work and my social security number, so that opens more opportunities for me. Scrolling on Facebook, she saw an ad for getting her GED in Spanish through DPS. That was my goal, to finish my GED. The teacher encouraged her, was available at all hours for support, but it was grueling, four tests to pass for the GED, and then... I've been through so much. On that time, 
I was feeling not okay, so I went to the hospital. They found out that I had pre-cancer. So I have a biopsy during that time, and it was really, really hard for me because I'm a single mom with four kids, and it was just like, oh my gosh. I was like, should I drop off and just focus on my health? And I'm like, you know what? No, I'm just gonna put everything on God's hand. She asked her teacher what she thought. Do you think that I can graduate? She's like, if you do the test, you can do it, Chai. She took the test. When I finished my math test, I cry because when I finish, I'm like, okay, I don't think I passed this because it was really, really hard. She got home dejected, sad, told her children she didn't pass. Her oldest son, who's studying mechanical engineering at Metro State University, grabbed her phone and went on the GED app. Her kids gasped. Mom, you did it! I'm like, oh my gosh, it was the best moment in my life. Vivo por mis hijos. Lucho por mis hijos. María del Rosario Trejo Rubio. Felicidades, Generación 2023. Lo hicimos. She'll get the results of her biopsy soon, but today, today's not the day to think about that. It's a time to savor those sweet emotions of doing something you never thought you could do. It's like, I want to cry, I want to jump. It's just, it feels so good. My goal is to buy my house. I get approved, so I'm looking for a house right now. So that's my goal, to get a house. And I really want to do paralegal or something to, I can help people. I really want to go back to college. I'm just really, really excited. I'm Jenny Brendine, CPR News. The 50th annual Telluride Bluegrass Festival starts Thursday. Every June, thousands of Festivarians, as they're known, descend on the small mountain town for four days of music. This year's headliners include Robert Plant and Alison Krauss, Nickel Creek, Emmy Lou Harris, Bela Fleck and the Flecktones, and performing a 49th time mandolinist Sam Bush. I drive across many rivers, use many moons to tell the times, then I tell all the young warriors, many moons ago this was mine all Bush is known in bluegrass circles as the King of Telluride. To explain how he earned that undisputed designation, here's music critic and longtime Festivarian G. Brown. Sam's Samminess is the thing that has driven this thing uh, over the years. His generous attitude towards other musicians, uh, the way he has just stepped up and made everyone feel welcome, from the youngest performers to the most cynical veterans. He's one of my idols. Brown heads the Colorado Music Hall of Fame, and a decade ago wrote, Telluride Bluegrass Festival, the first 40 years. 
Sam Bush wrote the book's foreword. We spoke in 2014. Gentlemen, nice to have you on the program. Thank you, Ryan. I'll give you a big country and western thank you coming from Nashville. I love it. Gee, the Telluride Bluegrass Festival began as a one-day event in 1974. It's four days now. Tell us about that first concert, will you? A happy accident, uh, if you hear the participants tell the story. There was a band that was named Fall Creek, made up of four guys, transplants from back east, Cooster McAllister, J.B. Mattiotti, John Picker Herndon, uh, hailed from nearby, and Fred Shellman was from Ophir. They got together and played various towns on the western slope and pawned their instruments when they didn't sell enough tickets, just scrabbling along. They had been to Winfield, Kansas, and seen a festival out there featuring a band called New Grass Revival, featuring one Sam Bush. Yes. And they decided that it would be great to hold their own bluegrass festival. The only way they could get new grass out their way was to throw a festival, and that really is what spurred things. We'll talk about the importance of this festival showcasing new grass in a moment, but um, it sounds like it was sometimes hand-to-mouth in those early days. They threw a party, basically, that first year in 1974. Uh, The town gave them permission to use Town Park, which at that time was nothing but a bunch of dirt and rocks, and various locals played, some people who had heard about it through the the acoustic music grapevine, and it was just a party, basically. Barbecue, frisbee, um, and Fall Creek playing at the very end. There's a photo in the book of the first festival. It's a humble crowd. Yes. In front of a humble stage. Yes. And uh, I think that was beyond their expectations, actually. <laughs> uh, Sam Bush, you missed the first Telluride Bluegrass Festival, but were there the following year with your band, Newgrass Revival. You're just 23 years old. What do you remember about it? Well, quite a lot and, and all good memories. Uh, I, you know, we met the guys in the Fall Creek Band. We became lifelong friends. We actually, before we went to Telluride, that was the only job we had was to drive all the way. I mean, it wasn't a tour, so to speak. So we we were to drive all the way to Telluride and back. And it's funny now that Courtney, our banjo player, he said, I'm not driving all the way to Colorado for one job. And we said, well, sure we are. They, they're, they're telling us we're the big cheese out here now. Well, we had never been to Big Cheese hardly anywhere before, <laughs> you know, and we actually we actually broke up for a few days in the two weeks before we were supposed to go to the festival, and finally we resolved uh, resolved our argument that we we should go, and and so we did, and and we just met life to this day, lifelong friends, and uh, and of course Courtney had the time of his life. We'd been searching for our audience or the kind of audience that could follow us down the musical path that we enjoyed playing in. And sometimes we didn't always fit in at traditional style festivals or what have you in the Southeast or in the East. And when we got to Telluride, just the the whole thing, the scenery, the people, the townspeople and the audience, it was as if they were wide open and ready for anything. And and that's exactly where we were coming from. So we made, we made pals right off the bat. Yeah, your band at the time, Newgrass Revival, played what some people called progressive bluegrass. That is, you used some electric instruments, and you played songs by non-bluegrass performers. So that you know included the Beatles and Bob Marley, and uh, here uh, a Jerry Lee Lewis song, "Great Balls of Fire." You shake my nerves and you rattle my brain. Your kind of love drives a man insane. You broke my will, but what a thrill! Goodness gracious, great balls. Love is fine. Good 
And Sam Bush, not everyone liked your take on bluegrass music, but Telluride audiences loved you. Why do you think that is? Why was it a good fit? I just think the Telluride audience wasn't locked into any one type of acoustic music, and so maybe the kind of music we were playing was almost like for them, a traditional kind of bluegrass. In other words, back then we used to joke around that if we played in front of a rock and roll audience, they thought we were bluegrass. Uh-huh. If we played in front of a bluegrass audience, they thought we were a rock band. So somewhere in the middle, that all met up and, and the people in the Telluride audience and community were ready for different sounds. Gee, the director of the festival, Craig Ferguson, once told Colorado Matters that New Grass Revival, Sam Bush's old band, is responsible for developing Telluride's musical spirit. Does that sound about right to you? No, that totally resonates. Uh, That's why I felt compelled to tell this story. It's an important part of Colorado music history. What transpired in the San Juan Mountains on that stage in Telluride didn't happen anywhere else. Sam might speak to this. Uh, Your experience at other festivals back in the 70s, Sam, the traditional bluegrass festivals, you were probably put on last, right? (laughs) Like at one in the morning? Quite a few of them, actually, and, th- and those were for the, from the promoters that really liked us, that let us play on the festival. Yeah. Uh, there was us, and uh, there was a, a band called Breakfast Special, and it would get to be 1 a.m. In, the, in the, some of these festivals, and neither of us had gone on yet, and now you're down to about 40 people in the audience. So, yes, it was a different sort of mentality that we got to go on uh, while the audience was awake. (laughs) It's always nice when the audience is in that state. G. Brown, um, who were some of the other big names in the early years of Telluride? Need to mention Tim O'Brien, who got his start with the Ophelia Swing Band. John Hartford, uh, known as the Pied Piper of Telluride, an amazing performer. Uh, Miss him terribly. Uh, A gentleman who commanded that stage all by himself. Certainly joined in with all of the legendary jam sessions that occurred on the Telluride stage. But by himself, uh, he was wireless. A little ahead of his time technologically back in the 70s. Was able to go out into the crowd with his fiddle and just uh, turn the entire crowd on. Uh, A fantastic shot on the cover of the book illustrates that point. about a few more names? Well, to me, the culmination of the Telluride musical ferment 
was strength in numbers. This was when Sam and uh, what came to be known early on as the Telluride All-Stars got together for the legendary jams. This is Bela Fleck on banjo, Mark O'Connor on fiddle, Edgar Meyer on bass, Jerry Douglas on dobro, and Mr. Sam Bush leading the charge on fiddler mandolin. It was the impetus to do this book, actually, what happened uh, on the stage in the late 80s when those guys took over. It was like seeing the Beatles uh, 10,000 people watching the five greatest instrumentalists uh, of their generation just getting after it, uh, just incendiary jams. Brings out the goose flesh just talking about it. It only happened at Telluride. It's an important part of our, our state's musical history that the Telluride Bluegrass Festival gave those five guys a chance to strut their stuff and uh, blow people's minds. There's a, a CD with 10 tracks of the Telluride sessions. Let's hear one of them, shall we? Sam Bush, what were your recollections of, uh, of strength in numbers? When we came together and people at first called us the Telluride All-Stars, to us five, it seemed a little presumptuous because <laughs> there were lots of All-Stars there. We were just five of them. And uh, we wanted to call the band Telluride. And when we recorded our CD, we found out there was another group, also not from Colorado, that already had copyrighted the name Telluride. And if we gave them a lot of money, we could use it. And so the title of the album was supposed to be Strength in Numbers, and we just decided, okay, well then, never mind, let's just call the band Strength in Numbers, that's a better name. Despite the name G, the, the festival really has never been about only bluegrass music. Uh, it's forgotten to time to an extent that the, the first couple of years it was called the Telluride Bluegrass and Country oh. Festival, um, and then truncated because 
<laughs> people didn't want to say the mouthful, I guess, but always pushing the boundaries of acoustic music. Tim O'Brien once said that if you added up all of the bluegrass players that attended Telluride, it would be the best bluegrass festival anywhere. But the promoters always wanted to cast a wider net than that. Uh, the best in acoustic music. Uh, maybe you could even say what's come to be known as Americana, although that uh, term hadn't been coined yet. I mean, uh, James Taylor performed in 1991, didn't he? That was a tipping point. That was when they opened the gates to book a headliner who would sell some tickets for him, and uh, it certainly worked. Has it always made money? No. Um, I'm not privy to financial details, but no, it was always a year-to-year thing in those early days. One of the charms of what Fall Creek and Fred Shellman accomplished was they didn't know anything about putting on a festival that you were supposed to have the money for the bands before you booked them. <laughs> that, that you could just go ahead and orchestrate everything. And then uh, after after the festival, you, you just assumed you'd have enough to pay them. Sam Bush, did you, anything to weigh in yeah. on there? <laughs> we always got paid. So that's all I can. But no, I mean, no, I mean, people, the, the perception of starting a new festival that everything's just going to work. I mean, it took them a really long time probably to start turning a profit hmm. and and as far as there being a Telluride Bluegrass Festival for 40 years you can thank uh, Craig Ferguson and Planet Bluegrass for coming in and, and maybe getting a more of an organized business plan and um, and helping that festival grow and to survive I mean how many festivals have been going 40 years it's pretty amazing but Planet Bluegrass we, we should say is a, a, an organization that puts on other bluegrass festivals as well ones that have, have also found success Gentlemen, thanks so much for reminiscing with us. Thank you, Ryan. Our pleasure, Ryan. Thanks. G. Brown directs the Colorado Music Hall of Fame and wrote Telluride Bluegrass Festival the first 40 years. Sam Bush will be making his 49th appearance at this year's event, which begins Thursday. We listen back to our 2014 conversation as the festival now turns 50. Started out of working in the summertime on the docks of the Mississippi Valley Bars Line. Stoking towboats on those long hot days. Getting half days old, sometimes with me. And that is Colorado Matters for today. With special thanks to David Hill. I'm Ryan Warner. You're at CPR News in KRCC. I can hear something coming up around the pier. Is the Julia Bell Swain boys?